Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Is This Music, a podcast about the mysteries of musical taste, why we love the music we love and hate what we hate. My name is Malcolm Fraser. I realized recently that almost all the guests on the podcast have been people who are in music somehow, musicians, DJs, people who work in the music business, music critics, and so on, people who are in the apparatus of music. But I haven't talked to anyone who is just a a collector of music or a music fan. Uh, Alan Zweig made a whole documentary back in 2000 about record collectors and the mentality behind collecting and uh, a lot of other issues too. And uh, after many years making other films, he's currently finishing up a follow-up of sorts to the movie Vinyl. It was a movie that affected me really profoundly at the time. And uh, I know a lot of other people who saw it as well. I talked to Alan about uh, records, which is also the title of his new film, uh, music, and a bunch of other stuff. I hope you enjoy it. So, Alan Zweig, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, as you say, it's been a, it's been quite a quite a number of years since we've chatted. Uh, you're still based in Toronto. Yes, I'm still in Toronto. Yeah, and I I, I met you years ago when you were making uh, your documentary Vinyl which is is not your first film but it was sort of your first uh, personal documentary is that uh, accurate to say it's it wasn't my first film that i ever made but when i when i'm asked to present my filmography or my resume etc i don't mention anything before that <laughs> i i okay. i that the previous history has been wiped out more or less on purpose so in a lot of ways, in my first, it's my first film. It's the first film that I made that anybody saw. It's the first film I made that found an audience, and it 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 launched something we could call a career, which I definitely didn't have before that. Right, and uh, for those who might not be familiar with the film, uh, it was um, it was a you know, essentially about uh, obsessive uh, record collectors from the point of view of someone who, who is one himself or was one. Yeah. I mean, I, I uh, in my new film, I talk about that film and I say that that film was about failure because it was told by somebody who felt that the film was narrated, whatever, narrated, guided, starring somebody who defined themselves as a failure and to some degree not really blamed the records, but kind of was looking for a connection between his, my inability to have a life and how much that was connected to record collecting. And I projected that, you know, probably more than I had to. Well, I remember I had the, I mean, I guess for full disclosure, I could say that my wife, Stacey DeWolf, did some production work on the film. Um, and I had the opportunity to see an early version of it, which was different from uh, the, the final version. 
And in this version I saw, the the first scene, you sort of, uh, I don't want to say confront, but you, you're speaking to another record collector and you just, you just hit him with this idea that the record collecting is filling like a void in his life. And the guy just looks like he's just been punched in the gut. It was very powerful, but very, uh, I mean, you were ahead of the curve in some ways with the extremely personal, uh, you know, oversharing or the, the just an extremely personal point of view. Oversharing. Yes, that's a good word for it. I have I made a career off of oversharing. And uh, and to so, be honest, I, I'm not proud of it in the sense that it became much more of a thing. After I made my film, although I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that those people saw my film, but I think I may have contributed to the spate of oversharing and, you know, I really think most people, most films overshare fairly poorly. So on that level, I, 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 I'm not glad what I wrought, but (laughs) anyway. I'm doing well, it again. Right. Okay, so let's talk about that because you've made a bunch of films in the interim, uh, several documentaries, some of which are are also personal and others that have branched out into into other topics and areas. And now you're working on something again that revisits some of the themes of vinyl? Yeah. It was it's it's it would be boring to go into it, but basically I started to try and make a film which was about music and which was, you know, kind of big celebrity driven thing about music more than about records. Okay. And I just don't have the clout. It's like, I can't get, you know, I can't get, I can't get into that world of Netflix and all the, the big budget docs. I couldn't get it. So there was just a, like a little bit of, you know, I was still kind of thinking about it and I was like, well, I could do basically kind of a sequel to vinyl, make it more about record collecting while also trying to make it about music. And so that's what got supported. So without really thinking about what that would entail, I just, you know, I was just glad to get a commission but yeah. I have to say that, you know, making films about trauma, broken people, even if one of the broken people is yourself, is a lot easier than making a, trying to make a film about, you know, in which you're being positive about yourself oh, yeah. <laughs> and your life and inviting others to be positive. So it's been, the film has really been break in my back I you know I honestly just hope I get away with it like but I don't think it's my I don't think it's my strength to make films that are positive okay full of light and and beauty this uh so your new film is is a more positive take on the uh in in what way well I mean, in one way, I would just say my own attitude is much more mellow. Like, I'm not, I'm not 
judgmental. I mean, I'm not really judgmental. If people live alternative lifestyles or are what my, you know, kind of marginal people with weird collections and shit like that, I was never really judgmental about that. But in the context of that film, I just ended up kind of more seeking out the more extreme people, the more obsessed, the more fucked up, the more kind of, you know, you know, the uh, have to take the records off the bed at night to go to bed, have to clear a path on the floor so you can go to the washroom. I just didn't look, I wasn't seeking that kind of person. I didn't find that kind of person. I don't know what I would have done had I found that kind of person. So I just was looking for people who loved records, had a lot of records. I didn't define what that was. And I didn't push the buttons of, hey, isn't this screwed up? Aren't you screwed up? I just was more like, hey, this looks like it makes you happy. Let's talk about it. So let's go back a bit. You said that your original idea was to make a movie about music. I mean, that's pretty broad. What about music? Uh, well, is it that you're interested yeah. In? I mean, it is very broad. Well, I don't know. I mean, I that's very broad and impossible. And those sort of broad, impossible ideas tend to attract me to my own detriment. Okay. Um, it was just like, you know, I'm interested in so much, like why people like what they, it's, it's more about like, what do the people who really need music in their life, sometimes that means physical media. What do we have in common? Not to say I discovered that, but it's just like, we're in this tribe, people to whom music means more than most people, you know? Like somebody in the film says, like, if you stop somebody in the street and say, do you like music? Everybody would say, yeah, I like music. But they don't collect records. They don't, you know, they don't make any effort to listen to music. They don't make any time. They don't, yeah, whatever. They they like whatever is playing at that moment. What is it about people like us who need music and what are we getting from it? And I'm not saying my film answers that. It doesn't, but that's what that's what I was thinking about when I was going to make the previous film and and has that carried carried over at all into the into the current film? Yeah, it carried over into the new film. Like I asked people in the new film from time to time, what does music do for you? Why do you like music so much? Knowing that's a bad question, knowing it's a dumb question, I asked it anyway. And, you know, I got some good answers. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the reason, okay, the reason I'm somewhat focusing on music in this film uh-huh. is because in vinyl when people told many people will tell you and they will to this day say 
I don't collect records. I collect music. Mm-hmm. To me, that is like, you know, it's, it's basically a del- self-deluded statement because, okay. because it, dude, if you collect records, you collect records. Those are records. They're not just, that's, yes, there's music on them and music has influenced you to buy records and your love of music. But, you know, you're a collector. You're, you're obsessed with the object. So when people in back then, 25 years ago, said, I collect music, I was just like, no, I'm sorry. It's not about the music. Mm. Whereas now it's 25 years later and I'm like, you know, if people had said to me, you know, I'm obsessed. I know I have 200 records that I've never listened to. Uh, I buy 100 records a week, etc., etc. But this all started with a love of music. I would have been like, you're preaching to the choir. Right. But it's when they absolutely separate themselves from collectors, as if collectors are like hoarders, which is basically they're creating a straw man. That dude over there, he's just a collector. I'm into music. Music is art. I'm like the man who collects paintings, etc. I'm I'm kind of ranting here, but the point is, at that time, 25 years ago, when people said to me that to me, I was like, okay, I am going to go after you on that. <laughs> so the thing is, vinyl was not about music. I think that if you were a record collector and you saw vinyl, mm-hmm. there was a lot of stuff about music, you know, in between the cracks for you to enjoy. Yeah. But but we never really talked about music and people would complain. I saw your film, how come you didn't talk about music? And it's like, well, that's a very complicated question. But anyway, so 25 years later, I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to try and talk about music in this film while talking about records and while talking about myself and while talking about what changed 25 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to try and bring all this stuff in, but also talk about music. Cool. And um, I mean, coming back to your distinction between like the records and the music, I, I recall that, you know, at some point after making vinyl, you had, you know, tell me if I'm getting this wrong or if it's, you know, too personal for me to share, but you had said at one point that you were getting rid of all your records. You were going to put them all onto CDs. And then subsequent to that, you put them into, onto MP3s, but then at some points you had relapsed into buying records. Where, where are you at with that now? Yeah, that's, I mean, um, that's semi-true. Um, uh, when... When um, those things, uh, you know, when CD recorders came out where you could basically, you know, put put the needle on and put things onto a CD and then dump them into your computer and listen on your computer, I went a little nuts on that. And then, and I bought a lot of, and that coincided with the time that I was buying a ton of really cheap records from Goodwill stores. Okay. And so it reached a point where I was like, okay, like 
I have 2,000 records just for one cut because, you know, Lawrence Welk does a very groovy version of the theme from SWAT. That's actually, okay. that's actually true. It's like, uh -huh. it probably wasn't, Lawrence Welk was probably not in the studio the day that was recorded. And so after a while, I was like, okay, um, I just wanted that one cut and I don't really care if I play the record, I never really play the record, so I'm just going to put all those cuts onto digitize them, and then I'm going to get rid of all those records and etc. And I did that. It actually took me a year. It's kind of funny. It took me a whole year to do that, and uh, and I did get rid of a whole bunch of records. And you know, eventually I bought a CD player, and. I mostly listened to CDs um, and listened on my computer for about 10 years or so. You know, I, I, I downloaded tons and tons of, you know, whatever, like, you know, like you just you look on somebody's blog and he's like, would you like every single Morricone soundtrack ever? <laughs> just push that button and... An hour later, you will have a hundred Morricone soundtracks. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to make this joke kind of about like, you know, when I was living with my ex-wife that she would go to bed and I would download 200 records. And when she came upstairs in the morning, looked around, didn't look any different than when she went to bed. I didn't get 200 records. I just yeah, like yeah. sucked 200 of them into my computer. So that, you know, that, uh, it was thrilling for a few years to hear all these things that you would never find on, on vinyl. And you might also have difficulty finding on CD. You know, there's this guy, it's weird, I met the guy, but for some reason, the word was out there that he was Japanese or that he was Italian. And he had made his own compilation called Bubblegum Mother Effers. And okay. he had a hundred of them. At least a hundred, like really obscure garage and bubblegum 45s. Okay. You'll never find them. They're not going to be released. And he digitized all of them and you could have all of them. So I went a little nuts with that. Then some, then I don't know, somehow CDs stopped being made and I kind of got bored with listening to stuff on my computer. So I went back to vinyl. Okay, so simple as that. Yeah, well, yeah, it was weird. I mean, it really did, it, it changed, things changed quite a bit because all through my entire life, I more or less 80, 75% of what I bought was contemporary to that period. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever, 60s, I bought the 60s, early 70s, I bought, that was that period of like Carol King and James Taylor. Then I bought punk, then I bought post-punk, then in the 80s I bought REM and Husker Du and their replacements. Then in the 90s, oh, I, I started, I liked Smog and Palace Brothers and 
And that was all on CD. And that kept going like that. And then all of a sudden, in like 2010, when there were no CDs, and I started buying records, the records that it was fun to buy and you could find and make discoveries were from like 66 to 74. Okay. So that is what I kind of, that is sort of what I listen to now is stuff from when I was a teenager, but not because I'm so nostalgic for that, but just because, well, I don't really know. Maybe it's my taste. Maybe it's, those are the records it's fun to find. Maybe those are the records I can find, you know. What was the, how did you feel about the resurgence of vinyl as a, as a collector thing? Because a few years ago, I mean, let's say, 10 years ago, maybe a little more, people were talking about it as if it was finished. Yeah. And um, and people still say that sometimes. And I'm kind of like, in Montreal at least, I mean, people are opening up new record stores. You know, they're, they're it's thriving and they're expensive too. It's just expensive reissues all over the place. Yeah, um, I'm not, the thing is, okay. So <laughs> it is funny because when the so-called vinyl resurgence came, people were saying you should make a, a sequel to your film vinyl. And I'm not interested in the vinyl resurgence at all. And I'm not, I would never make that film that they're talking about. I think the reason there's a vinyl resurgence is because there's no CDs. And because some people will always, through some pathological part of their composition want physical media some people won't you know i cannot for me uh spotify or things like that or youtube is just it's like i check things out i hear the song for 15 seconds i i'm looking to check something else out i can't sit still and listen to a record on spotify i need I need physical media. And I don't care if it's, as it turns out, when the, during COVID, uh, I was looking at records online. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of records that I had on CD that I never saw come out on vinyl or I had them on CD. So I was just looking and I, I'll never forget it on the, on the website for one um, one of the record stores in Toronto, there was this Tom Waits record, Bar Rooms and Brawlers. Mm -hmm. The vinyl was $400. Okay. And then I looked, and just something, Hayden. Hayden lives around the corner from me, but his vinyl is $100. Mm -hmm. I like his CDs. His CDs are in the Goodwill store probably now for five dollars but the vinyl is a hundred dollars so for my birthday i asked my family to get me a cd player <laughs> and so i started all these cds from the 90s and the 2000s that i never found on you know like richard holly i don't know if you know who that is yep kind of richard holly's records are two hundred dollars but i had four cds that i hadn't thrown out it's like so 
So as it turns out, yes, I prefer records, but I don't mind CDs. I like kind of like CDs. I like that CDs are cheap now. Cheap, CDs are the cheapest thing. So it's true. So, so that's all I'm saying is that I think that the reason the vinyl resurgence happened is because people want a thing. They don't want they don't want to stream like they might like that they get the card and they might check it out on some people will check it out on YouTube and be really happy. Some people will check it out. But some people will always want the thing because there's, you know, it's a thing. It's like, I, you know, I don't think I have to explain why you would like to own it, to hold it in your hand, to choose it, to decide to play it, to drop the needle on it, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Well, I think that it, it comes back to what you were saying before about the category of people who are obsessive about music. I mean, I've talked about this before with other guests on the show, but just like, you know, to be able to look at liner notes, like there's no liner notes on Spotify. You have to, you know, click through for minutes to even see what year it came out. Um, you know, so so people who like to to fully absorb the information about it are, I think, always going to gravitate to the object. It's a kind of a weird story because I tried to get celebrities in the film and I really couldn't. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it is really hard. I don't know if you've tried for your podcast. Maybe it's easier for a podcast. But if you're just some Canadian schnook who doesn't have a friend in L.A. to make the connections for you, it's really hard to get celebrities, even celebrities that had been in my other films, just wouldn't answer. Even, you know, I not, no, nothing against him, but like Henry Rollins has probably been in every documentary about records and music. He wouldn't do my film. Hmm. So I, I got kind of desperate and I thought that I read that Gilbert Gottfried was a punk rock collector. Okay, I totally like the story made, already. Totally made sense to me that he would be. Mm -hmm. So on that basis, one of my people asked him if I could interview him on Zoom, and he said yes. When I interviewed him, come to find out, not a punk collector, not a record collector, nothing to do with it, doesn't have any records, etc., etc. And though I really wanted to use him in the film anyway, because he's Gilbert Gottfried and I really love him, I yeah. just couldn't, I just couldn't rationalize putting him in the film. It just seemed like, you know, too sure. silly, too much an affectation. But I was just going to say, Gilbert, one thing he said to me that was dead obvious, but still I would have used, is he said, back then we listened to a record and we just stared at the record cover. And he said, that was our rock video which is a kind of a funny thing to say, but it's true. Yes, we looked at record covers and they didn't, you know, they often had very little information on them. Sometimes the bass player would say, oh, you can fill up the back of the record and the bass player would make up some crazy hippie acid flash fairy tale and it would just be the whole back of the record. That didn't really help you, but... <laughs> You know, uh, um, the other, I have this, the second traffic record okay. was a really big record to me. 
and I had the Canadian pressing. Mm -hmm. And I loved that record. And the other day, I saw an original pressing, which is a gatefold. And not just a gatefold, but there's like pictures inside. So I did something I never did. I was just like, I treated myself. I'm going to get the original pressing. I'm only, this is a long way to go to say that it's the only record I've ever seen where each cut, they say who played what. And on some cuts where like Stevie Winwood played everything, they name the other guys, but they say Dave Mason didn't play anything. <laughs> like what the fuck? Like was, there must have, you know, Dave Mason quit the band after that so that might have been why <laughs> but anyway yeah that yes the liner notes the this the picture that's part of it for sure but i think the biggest part of it is i don't know having to make a choice and take it out and pick it up and say this is what i'm gonna play now and then usually when you do you listen to the whole thing rather than you know, sampling, 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 sampling. Yeah, I mean, sometimes if you've gone to the trouble of putting the record on, it has to be pretty, pretty bad for you to go to the trouble of taking it off. Right. In fact, I, if a record has a lame cut in the middle, and after a couple of times I'm like, no, I can't take this, I sell it. <laughs> if the lame cut is at the end, maybe, but... If it's in the middle, it's just like, oh, shit, I never want to hear that record sound again. Uh, artists out there, think about this in your sequencing. Yeah. If the song is about how much you like beer or how great rock and roll music is, put it at the end of the record. <laughs> um, so uh, do you think that your rediscovery of CDs, um, is, is, is there, do you see any community around that? Do you, do you think that could be a phenomenon? I mean, someone's buying them in the stores, right? I think there is a... I, I hear a lot of people say, oh yeah, I never got rid of my CD player. I mean, the problem, it, the problem is that if too many people go back to them, then the price will go up. Like, you can... I, my girlfriend's car, turns out it does have a CD player. It was hidden in the was hidden in the glove box. But the car I had before that had a CD player and a cassette player. And uh, yeah. it was nice to go to Value Village and just be like, oh, you know what? I never really gave Mojave 3 a chance. Hmm. Let's, you know, like, I never really gave Radiohead a chance. But all their, you know, I bought three of their CDs at Value Village and put them in the car and they just, they just played again and again and again. I kept forgetting to take them off and then <laughs> I became a Radiohead fan. And so I think the cheap, like records are going up. Crap records, rec, you know, are gonna, it's 20 bucks for a record, 40 bucks for a record is not rare now for a used record. Yeah. But I don't think anybody is charging more than 7.95 for a CD. So I yeah, I'm sort of weird how much I like CDs now. Well, you know, I mean uh there it, it's difficult now that the the computers 
aren't even made with a CD drive or car stereos, as you say. But I mean, uh, as long as you have a player, it's a perfectly respectable way to listen to music. I mean, well, um, it's, you know, it's so it's funny here in where I live, I have uh, like an office and that's where I have, let's say the records that I think that my girlfriend or company might not appreciate that okay. much. And I have a turntable downstairs. We also have a turntable because she already had one when I moved in and downstairs I have my jazz records and sort of the records that I think I could play for people or we would put on during dinner. But that's where I put the CD player was downstairs. And that was like two months ago and I haven't played a record. I haven't played a record since. All I'm doing is playing CD players, CDs. Part of it is because the CDs I have are from this certain period of my life when CDs came out and when I liked when I liked those bands that came out on CD and like the Bowles Brothers or Tinder Sticks or Smog or something, you know, who yep. some of that stuff did get reissued on vinyl, but it was very hit and miss. So part of it is sort of like downstairs is where I listen to Smog and upstairs is where I listen to what are, you know, Tony Joe White. Okay, yeah, I was curious when you said that the records that company are not interested in hearing, what's in that section? Well, it's just, you know what, I just, I, it's, it's, I don't listen to anything. We, I mean, I could say Captain Beefheart. Okay, there is Captain Beefheart up here. But that's, it's, 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 I don't know. There are plenty of records up here that I could play. But, you know, like, even when my girlfriend is hanging out in my room, I tend to go downstairs to get records for her. I just don't expect for her to like the stuff I'm playing upstairs. And, you know, and I've been right many times. You know, she <laughs> she didn't really grow up on... There's a lot of stuff I listen to that she just says, that's guitar music. And kind of in a slightly dismissive way, you know. I put on Nick Cave one night and then the other next day I put some like Yola Tango on and she was like, is this Nick Cave again? It's like, no. It's <laughs> like, wow, it's guitar music. Um, so let's go back a little bit to the uh, the core question you were exploring in your in your initial version of uh, of your current film, um, which is, if I can paraphrase what you said, you know, what is it about music obsessives that, you know, why do we get so, so obsessive about music? Um, what, in, have you thought about it in, in your own case, what, what that might be? Well, that is what I'm mostly interested. That's the only reason I would make the film is kind of to help me figure it out for myself. I have the, you know, I've made a number of films that you're calling personal and those personal films, I'm never the only one in them. I'm always in them less than everybody else. But, mm -hmm. but you know, it's, 
somebody said, you use other people to tell your story. There's some truth to that. So, you know, um, I do. It's like I survey other people, like, how did this happen to you? And I hope that somehow that will um, help me figure out what happened to me. I think that, for you know, I think for a lot of people, I think there are a lot of people who, when they were kids, wanted to escape their milieu. Okay. It might have been, you know, like I have a guy in the film who got into napalm death and things like that because he grew up in a town in Ontario where he, which he said was full of you know, Nazis and racists and homophobes and skinheads. And he needed this music that told those people, you know, like as uh, Joe Biafra would say, Nazi punks fuck off. Like okay. he needed. So um, sometimes it's an escape. Sometimes it's an escape from something bad. Sometimes it's identity. You know, my friend Don Pyle, when he was listening to Bowie and Diamond Dogs and songs about clandestine meetings at the edge of town and things like that, he didn't know he was gay, but he was gay. And right. and the music, you know, connected with him. In my case, I was an upper middle class Jewish boy who was... Um, on track to being a lawyer or a doctor like my peers but I grew up in the 60s so I had this push-pull between wanting to go to hate Ashbury and just drop acid and being too scared to do that because I was mm -hmm. um, you know I was like a sheltered upper middle class boy at home I didn't go down to Yorkville. You know, I've often said that if I'd gone down to Yorkville at 16 and been a hippie for a couple of years, I probably would be a corporate lawyer now. I, if I, but I never got it out of my system. So <laughs> I see. Okay. So I think that music was records were a way for me to connect with you know, a culture that I, a, a movement whatever, that I was too young and too scared to go be part of, but I could be part of in my room. Mm. Now, why that continued the rest of my life is a, is another question, because a lot of people probably do that when they're younger, and then they give it up. And I don't know why I didn't give it up. I just think that, uh, it, I don't know, it always gave me something that nothing else could, which seems you know, kind of obvious. So you said earlier that these days you mainly, your main focus is like music from the 60s as far as what you're listening to today, what you're collecting. Well, yeah, well, I mean, it's since, like I say, since I bought the CD player, I've been listening again to stuff from the 90s. But um, when I look for records, when I buy records, when I go to use record stores, etc. My focus is sort of 
stuff from, you know, I would say 66 to 74 pre-punk sort of uh, psych, prog, early prog, folk, stuff like that. And also I'm, I'm ent almost entirely focused on things that I've never heard of. Not okay. because the obscurity, I mean, the obscurity is not a complete non-issue to me, but the reason I like obscure things is because I can't uh, get any enjoyment from, I, I, I don't like to hear or to play things that I'm very familiar with. If I had the record as a kid and I played the grooves off it, I never want to hear it again. I don't, I don't, yeah, like if I, like I might in any given day, I might listen to 20 records that cannot hold a candle to Sergeant Peppers or something like that. But if I never hear Sergeant Peppers again, I'll be fine. Because, and that's not, I mean, Sergeant Peppers isn't the center of my taste, but I'm just saying, I have like 10 Dylan records. Highway 61 and Blonde on Blonde were, you know, very influential to me, but I don't listen to them and I don't have any Stones records and I don't have any Beatles records and I don't have, you know, every once in a while, yeah, I I will listen to Donovan record or something, but it's then it's still got to be a Donovan record that I didn't have. Right. Yeah, I think that, that could come back to what you were saying before about the, the difference in mentalities because, you know, uh, I think a lot of people who are not musical obsessives, they really like to focus on the known. I mean, hence the popularity of all these radio, classic rock radio. Yeah, I can't, totally, I can't deny that there isn't something a little bit fun about, you know, as some people say, uh, giving giving worth to the worthless, finding a record that nobody's heard of and and kind of like discovering it and thinking, oh, this is a lost classic and this should be reissued. And, you know, that's like, not that it should, but that's definitely fun to, you know, be surprised because you never heard of it, like... In my film, I decide to, I am going to name one record that I love and that I'm really happy that I found. And I did it for a few records, and I just happened to choose this one by a guy named Rusty Kershaw, who's Doug Kershaw's brother. Okay. I have the record because one day there was nothing to buy in the store, and though I normally don't buy things by people I'm familiar with, I was just kind of desperate enough, and I was like, okay, you know... I saw Doug Kershaw back in the 60s. He does Cajun records, but what the hell. So I bought, brought him the Doug Kershaw record. And actually, like a lot of guys in the 60s, he was sort of trying to find a sound and trying to be psychedelic and trying to be eclectic and trying to be weird. And so I really liked this weird Doug Kershaw record, which was easy to... They're cheap. Doug Kershaw records are like Porsche. So I bought a couple more Doug Kershaw records, and then one day I saw this one... I read a little bit about him, and I heard he was in a band with his brother, Rusty. And then I saw this Rusty Kershaw record, 
called Cajun in the Blues Country. Mm-hmm. And it was, it blew my mind. Like, it just, ugh, I couldn't believe it. Like, it was just the weirdest, great, like, kind of half fucked up, half normal, you know, just songs that you're like, why did you think this would be a good song? But I love it. <laughs> and then, then, and the funny thing is, when I said Rusty Kershaw to people, they're like, oh yeah, Rusty Kershaw was on on the beach. He's on the Neil Young record. In fact, he's in the he's in the liner notes. He was in the band. And then you read these stories about how Rusty Kershaw, who was this colorful Cajun redneck genius, hung out with Neil Young and kind of showed Neil the ropes on like being a real man and I don't know what, but anyway, whatever. It definitely is a thrill to find that record. If it now became very popular, that would be okay with me. It's not like I need to be the only one who knows about it. And of course I'm not, but I won't. Yeah, it's nice to have no expectations and put on a record and have your mind blown. Of course, 75% of the time, it's shit. Uh-huh. From that, you know, psychedelic records are very uh, questionable. Uh, but uh, every once in a while, so. Yeah, yeah. well, as a, uh, you know, as an era, it was it was so adventurous but there's so much opportunity to go wrong, horribly wrong. Yeah. Well, that's what's exciting, I guess. Yeah. I mean, so it was, it was, you know, it was the beginning of records becoming commercial, but they hadn't become so commercial that the record companies had a formula. It was mm-hmm. in the days, yeah. that's what they always say about Easy Rider. When Easy Rider, the movie came out, the record the movie companies had no idea why it was so successful because they would have never made that film. And so they started to think, let's hire young guys. And when they want to do things that we don't understand, let's let them do it. And that led to Altman and Scorsese and Bob Rafelson and Five Easy Pieces and all these amazing films that the studio would not have made. And then eventually the studio, you know, whatever, eventually they're like, okay, now I think we know what we're doing. Of course they don't. And then they, the freedom goes away. So in the 60s, yeah, they didn't know what the hell, why was the, you know, why did the Doors sell a million copies when so many other bands didn't? And so, yeah, they let, they let people do whatever the hell they want. And sometimes what they wanted to do was absolutely stupid. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Well, that's 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 true in every era, but somehow the particular excess of that era is kind of like kind of fascinating. So where uh, where are you at with your film? What what stage is it at? I am three and a half weeks away from locking picture, as they say. Okay, and so it's my friends. I think of me as a boy who cried wolf that I always say that the film is harder than it should have been and 
that I don't know what I'm doing and etc. And okay, I admit that I often feel kind of bereft in the middle and like, oh my God, why did I have this horrible idea? But this time I'm not crying wolf. This time <laughs> I really don't know what this one, this one is kicking my ass. And the only thing I can say to justify that that could be true is because like I said, it's hard to know how to make a film with a positive message with a, with a pretty thorough lack of dysfunction. I, I, I share a little bit of my own neuroses, but otherwise, you know, it's a lot of pretty happy people. Um, now there's one screw, you know, there's one funny, funny, excessive guy in Montreal in the film, Sam. Yeah, it's it's a it's hard for me to figure out how to make a good film from mostly positive impulse. You know, like about being positive, not being trauma. You know, I like trauma. Trauma is a good subject for me. Right. Um, how does it? Uh, I mean, how do you feel about revisiting? Uh, this ground i mean a lot of uh a lot of your films have been radically different from each other in their subjects you know i mean part of yeah part of what i feel right now is basically i think the reason i made this film which makes no sense is you know i was 48 when i made vinyl i don't know are you 48 now i'm 47 okay so imagine that nothing you've ever done before now, anybody, you're just nowhere. And then next year, suddenly people know you and they're interested in your work. So, so I was 48 and I had kind of given up and it took me a few years after that came out to like actually stop calling myself a failure and stop reminding people how old I'd been when that happened and etc. Mm -hmm. So I after, after I made that, I made nine more feature docs which variously did well and were watched and opened the odd festival and whatever and I went from being, you know, like you know, a rebel failure to being just like, oh, that guy again. Like, oh, <laughs> oh, like, you know, what, oh, another film from him. Like, so after I finished the 10th one, I kind of thought, okay, I probably have five more in me and all bets are off. I don't have to try. I'm not ever going to be more successful than I am now. I'm never going to break into, you know, I'm never going to break into the States. I'm never going to win an Oscar. I'm never going to, you know, whatever. Like, this is it. My little, my success in my little pond. I'm grateful for it. It's more than I ever thought. I made 10 films. I was kind of prolific. This is, I'm very uncomfortable saying all this because it's kind of, seems a little braggy. 
But anyway, so after that, it was just all, all bets are off. And, you know, here's a funny story. Somebody hired me to make a film about Stomp and Tom Connors. Okay. And I thought, yes. I would never choose that subject, but who doesn't like Stomp and Tom Connors? He's a very colorful person. I started to do the research. Everybody had good stories about him. He was the, you know, he's the, he's more punk than anybody. You know, he gave back his Junos when they, when they, and he didn't, when they made a category for American artists at the Junos, he was like, that's it. He gave back his Junos and he didn't play any music for the next 15 years. Like he was hardcore. Uh -huh. Anyway, I thought that was a no brainer. Is stomping Tom Connors, you know. I went for a meeting at the CBC, and this person said to me, you know how many uh, music doc ideas I have on my desk? And then she started going, Barney Bentall, Northern Pikes, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, Stomp and Tom Connors, is that, this, you know, like nothing against the Northern Pikes or Barney Bentall, I'm just saying, you know, it's yeah, Stomp it's not, and it's Tom Connors. Like, he, you know... He's like, he was one of the p most popular Cana Canadians, you know. Anyway, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, I'm talking about this here. Maybe somebody at the CBC is listening. Oh, we were about to give you money, but now you're shitting on us. Anyway, the point is, um, at the back of my mind, I was thinking about making a film inspired by my friend Jim, who killed himself and blew my mind when he did. And, but no, I'm going to make this film about Stomp and Tom Connors, which will be fun. At the end, they'll be dancing and singing and everybody will be, you know, we'll have a big scene where everybody's dancing to Tom, Stomp and Tom Connors. But no, that's not happening. But the film about suicide is happening. I consider that to be sort of, that's my life. You know, anyway, but whatever, I'm looking forward to making a film about suicide. And I don't know if I answered your question. I just, I, I. Vinyl was a real gift in my life. It changed my life. It still gets rediscovered. I still meet people who watch it on YouTube for the first time. I'm really grateful for what how that film changed my life. And I, your wife is one of the people, many people, Bruce McDonald and Stacy, and a lot of people who plucked that thing out of obscurity and helped that happen. So I kind of like the idea of making a film that pays tribute to that film, even though I also think that's a really bad idea for a movie. <laughs> so I'm kind of, I'm, you know, like I'm just trying to get away with it. I'm just trying to like, not have people go, oh, you know, he made some good films for a while, but, you know, towards the end there, whoo, did you see that vinyl sequel? Ooh, I'm just trying to not let that happen. This film is called Records, by the way. It's not called okay. Vinyl 2, and it's not called, many people thought it would be funny if I called it Vinyls. <laughs> that would have been funny, but I didn't have the nerve to do that. So it's called Records. And, um, I don't know, I hope, 
I hope I get away with it. That's all I can say. I think it's, I think it, I think it'll be, you know, a mildly entertaining, entertaining little piffle. And it, it won't have my normal, you know, uh, you know, the deep trauma, but, uh, well, it sounds like you've got that, you know, on deck. Yes, the, I do. Yeah, that's project. true. I do. Um, well, Alan, I, I really look forward to seeing the film. I, I thought vinyl was, was really powerful. And uh, and it, it definitely, I, I feel like it cured me in a way of the record collecting impulse. Um, so you never, you never, you never pursued it. Well, you know, I, 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 I feel the urge and every now and then I'll, uh, I'll go and buy some records, but it was a, you know, it was it was like a like an intervention, right? In the, in the, but I also have some great records that you gave me when you were getting rid rid of a bunch of stuff. I have some great uh, easy listening uh, oh. records that I still have. That yeah, you were giving away in a box at a, a screening of vinyl. Oh yeah, that was a yes. I know for some people the film was a cautionary tale, and that's fine. I mean, I I yeah. This film isn't, definitely. This film, I don't think it'll inspire anybody to become a record collector, but it could, I think, because it makes it look fun. And there's not, no, and also, it makes it clear that there are people living balanced lives who have, you know, I, there's a guy in the film, he's got a wife, he's got kids, he's got a job. He has 25,000 records. He has records in a home. Not just in Toronto. He's got home. He's got records in the basement in Guelph. He's got records in the garage. I always say, okay, when your records are in the garage, that's that should be a wake up call. But anyway, he does. He has records in a house in Colombia. He has records in a house in Spain. You know, but he's a he's a fine, upstanding citizen. And well, maybe this will be the the film that motivates me to get back into record collecting. Montreal is definitely a good place for used record stores. So Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um well Alan, thank you for your time. I I really look forward to seeing your new film and uh I I think I have uh I don't want to say I have higher hopes than you do, but I, I, I'm confident that it it'll be uh it'll be, it'll be better than I'm saying. I, w I would bet I would bet that for sure. No, well you know what I always say to audiences, always, I always say, reach into your soul and lower your expectations. So. <laughs> That's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find Alan Zweig's vinyl on YouTube. You can find a bunch of his other movies kicking around and keep an eye out, as I will, for his new film, Records. I always like to wrap up by encouraging people to... Uh, Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, leave a review, and I stress the importance of sharing with anyone who might be interested. But I want to just rewind back and uh, focus a little bit on the uh, Apple Podcast ratings, if you'll, uh, if you'll bear with me for a sec. Now, early on, uh, when the podcast was beginning, I looked at Apple Podcasts, I saw we had two ratings. And a little while ago, I looked again, two ratings. Now... Uh, I, you know, I, I went into the back end and I saw that fully 19% of uh, what is this music listeners use the Apple Podcasts platform. And uh, I'm not very good at math, but um, 
19% of the total listeners is more than two. So if you're listening right now on the Apple Podcasts app, I'm asking you to go take two seconds and one action of your thumb or finger to just leave a little rating. And it's not just for my ego, although I was not very happy when I saw there were only two ratings. It's so that this podcast can get more attention and reach more people and bring attention to uh, all the fantastic uh, guests on the show and this uh, project that I'm trying to do and continue doing it for your ears. So I, I'm not asking for much here, people. Just that few seconds, that little little digital action on your part. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time for more What Is This Music?